Bible up with me to John chapter 16, John 16, where we'll be centering our thoughts uh, for this part of our worship together as we study the Bible. John chapter 16, good to see you this morning. Appreciate so much Carter leading us in those songs uh, to set our minds and to set our thoughts to worship God and to think about God's things. That's what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning. I'm going to get right into it. I have a lot to cover and not that much time. John 16 and verse 7. John 16 and verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So it's a sad night. Jesus is giving what we might call some last words to his apostles and disciples. And there is a tone that is very sad and somber because Jesus hints at several times that he is going away. And this will be the last time that he's going to have these kinds of conversations with them. Although certainly after his resurrection, he is going to. But he's preparing them for the time ahead. And one of the interesting things he says is that it's actually going to be better for you that I go away. He says that in verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. And that's, that's probably pretty shocking, both to them and to us, that it would be better for Jesus not to be there. But the reason, he says, is because if I go away, I will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will do a work through you and in you that will be a blessing to you and to the world. And so throughout this speech, which, by the way, stretches from chapter 14 all the way through, really through the prayer in chapter 17, so it's four rather lengthy chapters, this speech tells us a lot about the Spirit and the work that the Spirit is going to do. Jesus says, the Spirit will be with you forever. The Spirit dwells in you and will be in you. The Spirit will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will bear witness about me. You also will bear witness. He will guide you into all truth. He will declare you things that are to come. He will glorify Jesus. So when you get all that picture, here's what I want you to get. Jesus is saying when he talks about the Spirit who is about to come, He says, when Jesus is no longer present, the work goes on. And the reason the work goes on is because the Spirit has come to continue the work of Jesus. And here, the work that the Spirit's going to do in Jesus' absence, physical absence, is called conviction. The Holy Spirit coming to convict the world. That's here in verse 8 where he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the work of the gospel is going to hinge on the Spirit convicting the world. And that raises a lot of questions for us. Like, how is that going to work? How does the Spirit convict the world? Is that something that's restricted to the apostles? Do we have anything here that we can learn from what Jesus is telling? Why does this matter? And so I want us to answer some of those questions this morning and kind of dig in. We're going to talk about uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning for just a few minutes. Now, I found a great definition of the word convict that I think will really help us in this study. To convict is to show someone his sin and summon him to repentance. That's from a theological dictionary of New Testament terms by Kittle. And showing someone his sin and summoning him to repentance, that's the essence of conviction. So there is some information given about the person and about what sin is, and then there is the call that says, now you need to change, and perhaps even the threat of judgment if we do not. So that's what the Spirit is said to do. The Spirit is going to come and convict. He is going to point out sin, and then summon sinners to repentance. And Jesus says there are three areas 
in which the Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So let's break those down for a few minutes, and then we're going to see what that looks like in practice. The first one of those, Jesus says, is sin because they don't believe in me. So look in verse 8. It says in John 16 and verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So the Spirit is going to come and show the world their sin of the rejection of Jesus. So to show someone his sin, the Spirit is going to show the rejection of Jesus and summon the world to repentance. Now, the way that's painted in the gospel, particularly the gospel of John, is that when people reject the Messiah, when they refuse to believe, they add to their sins, and this becomes a definitive rejection of God. So if you look back just a page here, leave your marker here in John 16, we'll come back. Uh, but John 15 and verse 22, John 15 and verse 22, it says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus' coming has brought to the forefront their rejection. That's the point. They hated me without a cause. And if I had not come, he says, they would have no sin. I don't believe Jesus is being literal as if Jesus brought sin into the world. But he is saying there is a much greater sin that they're now guilty of as a result of my coming. Now they've come, the light has come into the world and they rejected the light. Now I've come to save them, and they've crucified me. So now it's worse for them than if I had not come, because now they have added to their sins the rejection of the Messiah. Look with me back in John chapter 3. John 3 says this pretty clearly. John chapter 3 and verse 16. John 3 and verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, or condemnation, yours might say, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So I want you to notice what's happening here. Man was already slated to perish. That's in verse 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. We were already going to perish. It's only through Jesus we have hope to not die. But Jesus doesn't come to condemn. Remember, we were already condemned before Jesus came. Jesus came to save. So he says in verse 17, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're already condemned, but now they sort of add to their condemnation because they have not believed, they have sinned, and now they have rejected the only hope of salvation from sin. And so he uses that picture in verse 19. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So whole point is Jesus is saying, they have definitively rejected me. They have sinned and the Spirit is going to come and convict them of sin because they don't believe in me. They should. I'm the light that's come into the world to save them and to bless them. He says in another place, John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, which just cements even more the idea of that rejection. I want to point out a couple of passages here just to say 
sometimes the rejection is not just about the rejection of Jesus, but it's also about revealing a deeper motive for why we do what we do. And that's still true today, by the way. When we reject Jesus, there's a reason. It's not just because we're being obstinate. There's a reason for us being obstinate. So in John 5, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So he's saying, the problem here is you're after men's praise, not God's praise. And if you're after men's praise, you're always going to do the things that lead to men praising you, and that's not always going to connect you with God. So no wonder you don't believe. You're not concerned about God's things primarily. Or this is uh, John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Okay, so, so it's not just that, you know, we have a disagreement about who Jesus is and, you know, I think he's this, you think he's this. It's that if we're going to be of God and follow God, we're going to hear what God says. So you see a deeper motive at play here. In fact, Jesus would say they have a deeper allegiance because this is a section where he calls them children of Satan. So you get the idea, though. Jesus says the Spirit is going to come. After this is all complete, they're going to be definitively have not believed in me. So he is going to show their sin and summon them to repentance. All right, let's look back in John 16. The second of these is in verse 10. John 16 and verse 10, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So I just put righteousness because I go to the Father. I'm not saying that you will see me no longer. It's not important. It was just too long to fit on my little slide here. So uh, that's there in the text. I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Now, this is a tough one because righteousness has a whole bunch of different meanings. And there's no hint anywhere in the context or really anywhere in John as to what Jesus means here when he talks about righteousness. But the idea of I will go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, Jesus talks about that quite a bit, that he will not be on earth together. In fact, you'll seek me and you won't find me. And where I go, you cannot come. He says several times to both the Jews and to his disciples. But this is about more than dying, right? They would have thought, like if someone, one of us were to say, uh, you guys won't be able to see me anymore. Where I'm going, you can't come. We would assume that if somebody's going to go somewhere that we could not possibly come, they're going to die. That's what we would think. But Jesus is not saying I'm going to die. He's saying I go to the Father. And going to the Father is totally different than just saying I'm going to die. It means that there is purpose, there is still life, and in fact, there is pleasure from God toward Jesus. He is vindicated. He is shown to be righteous. So what I want you to see and what I believe is happening here is that the world renders a certain verdict about Jesus. The verdict about Jesus is that Jesus is unrighteous. And it's very clear because he is posted up on a cross, the symbol of you have been condemned, found guilty, and now you are punished to the fullest extent of the law. You are unrighteous. There is an assumption And we would assume the same thing. If we were to see someone killed by the state, we would say they must, I mean, they're almost certainly guilty. They've been condemned by the state. They are unrighteous. And that's even what those around the cross taught Jesus with. You remember? You know, hey, if God wants you, why doesn't he save you? Even in his death, they're saying the fact that you have disobeyed God is shown by the fact that God refuses to come save you. So the resurrection, though, the ascension of Jesus to the Father, they say something different. They say that Jesus is not unrighteous. They say that Jesus is 
pleasing to God. They say that Jesus now is at the right hand of God. Jesus is, here is the word, Jesus is vindicated. And everything about his righteousness is now proven because he goes to the Father and you see me no more. In fact, I would say even the Holy Spirit's coming is evidence of this. Look back in chapter 15 and verse 26. In 15, 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He's going to testify about me. The Spirit is going to tell about Jesus. In chapter 16, right where we're reading, verse 14, it says, He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You remember in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost? And Peter says, Jesus, Jesus at the right hand of God, he has poured out what you now see in here. The tongues and the Holy Spirit baptism, all of this. What you see in here is about Jesus being exalted. Jesus is vindicated, and so he is proven to be righteous. In fact, Jesus is not only righteous, but he's the key to us being righteous because Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now we can be righteous because of him. So all of that said, the Spirit is going to come and convict the world of righteousness. It's going to show the world that Jesus truly is righteous. Its standards of righteousness were wrong. And the failure of its own righteousness is evident. So Jesus has been vindicated. Then the third in verse 11. Let's go back to John 16 and verse 11. It says, He will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, so judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a lot about judging in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus asserts the power and right to judge. He says he has been given the right to judge in chapter 5 by the Father. Uh, he also asserts he has left behind the word that will judge us on the last day in chapter 12. He has that right. He has that authority. But I want you to go back with me to chapter 12 for just a moment. John chapter 12 and verse 31, because here you see the connection between judgment and the ruler of this world being judged. John chapter 12 and verse 31 John 12 and verse 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now the ruler of this world is a name or a title for Satan. The one who is in charge of the world, who the world worships and follows. So Jesus says, the ruler of this world is cast out. Now is the judgment. He is saying what is about to happen as I go to the cross, is going to displace Satan, judge him, and cast him out. Satan has the power now, but I will conquer him. So Jesus says, I'll be lifted up, and I will draw all people to myself, and that will be proof that the ruler of this world is judged. So again, we have this idea that Jesus has gone to the Father, Jesus is now installed as judge, we have this idea that the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus prove his power, not just his righteousness, but his power over Satan. Jesus now can judge. Who else could judge? Who else is greater than that? The one who has defeated the ruler of this world. In fact, the way the, the logic works is that the fact that Jesus has defeated Satan means that Jesus has the right to judge again. He has judged in the past and he will judge in the future. That's the way this works in Acts 17. Paul says... The times of ignorance God overlooked, 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he will judge the world by a man. And the proof of that is the fact that he was risen from the dead. He raised him from the dead. So to go back to our picture of conviction, if conviction is to show someone his sin and summon him to repentance, then the spirit is going to convict the world of judgment to show that the judgment of this world was poor and to show also that the world has been judged and condemned and, in fact, that there is a greater judgment to come. All of this proven by the fact of Jesus. So, got all that? All right, now I want to talk about what I want to talk about. So when we understand all of that, I think the question is not, Although there's, those, those phrases are a little strange, especially the becauses don't always seem to, to match up with things that are natural for us. So I wanted to work through some of that. But the real question is how? How does the Spirit do that kind of convicting? What, what does that look like? I believe that the most natural way to understand this, and I mean that in the sense of the context and the things that are said about the Spirit and what Jesus is doing in preparing the apostles is to say that the Spirit is going to convict the world through the work of the apostles, that he is empowering and teaching and bringing remembrance and taking of Jesus' things and giving to them. So, if that's the case, then it should not surprise us when we see the Holy Spirit working through these men to preach the gospel and through them convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But I want, to, I want to give a caution before we move any farther. When conviction happens in the New Testament, conviction has to begin with information. We have to learn something. We have to hear about Jesus and what's been done. If we're going to say convict is to show someone his sin, then we have to tell people what sin is, and we have to tell them and talk to them about how they may be guilty of that sin. We've got to bring those things together. There has to be communication. There has to be information. Now, when that information is given and application of that information is made, it produces emotions. People get upset. But that emotion is not the same as just the idea of convicting. See, convicting happens when we show someone their sin and summon them to repentance. It is not about only producing an emotion, nor is it responsible for what people do with their emotion. I think sometimes we get confused about conviction. And very often in the religious world this happens, where conviction just means you feel something. And certainly conviction can have emotion attached to it. But when the Spirit convicts, this is what He does. He shows sin and calls us to repent. Let's see what that looks like. Look with me in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2 and verse 36, Peter concludes his sermon here, which, by the way, was prompted by the Holy Spirit's coming on the, the people there. Acts 2.36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we have information communicated to show someone their sin, right? God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So there's no question that the Spirit has shown them their sin. And then there is the response, verse 37. It says, they were cut to the heart. Okay, there's an emotion. Okay, because we begin to think, do I need to change? Am I wrong? And they ask the question, what shall we do? And then you have more information. Verse 38, repent and be baptized. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there is the summoning to repentance. But what is not the responsibility of the Spirit here is, how are these people going to respond? What are they going to do? Are they going to accept it or reject it? Are they going to be baptized or not? That's really outside the Spirit's realm. The Spirit's job is to convict. And you see, he has done that. He's done that through the preaching of Peter and through the example of him testifying through the gifts of the Spirit that he has poured out. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted because the Spirit was doing the work Jesus promised the Spirit would do. Turn with me over to Acts 7. Acts 7. Acts 7 and verse 51. This is at the end of uh, Stephen's sermon, rather lengthy sermon. And it appears, I, I know I've had this experience as a speaker, at least the way I read this text, and you may totally disagree, it's okay. The way I read this text is that Stephen is preaching and preaching and his audience begins to lose interest. And so Stephen says, all right, well, let's just get to the point. Let's just cut to the chase. He's got this long sermon about all the different times Israel has rejected the Holy Spirit. And uh, verse 51, he just looks at them and says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, have received, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So, I, I, as I said, I've had that experience as a speaker where, you know, you're beginning to lose your audience. You better, you better get them. Although I've never had a response quite like this one. But you have Stephen saying, you guys are guilty. And he makes it very clear. You always resist the Holy Spirit and you are now in line with the worst stories of rejection in the history of your people. He has shown them their sin. Now, the text is very clear. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, chapter six. Okay, in chapter seven here, he's gonna be staring up into heaven full of the Holy Spirit and seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. Okay, so, so this is very clearly attributed to the Spirit. But... I want you to notice that the emotions that are produced are a result of the information communicated by Stephen through the Spirit, right? Now, in verse 54, it says, my version says they were enraged. Your version probably has something like cut to the hearts. One of, my, one of the failings of the ESV that I'm reading from, this is the same phrase as in chapter 2. Now, certainly they were mad. They were cut to the heart, and it produced a different set of emotions. But you've probably heard before. I mean, we think about being cut to the heart. We've all had that. But we don't always do the right thing with it, do we? Sometimes when we are feeling convicted, we get mad. 
at the person who's convicting us. We don't respond the way we should. I think we probably all had that experience. We get defensive. And sometimes when we are cut to the heart, we get, we get humbled. We, we, we respond rightly. We realize, yes, I've sinned. I've done wrong. I need to do better, like they did in Acts 2. But, but what I want you to see is the Spirit's doing the work of convicting the world, Acts 2 and Acts 7. It's just that it might look different because people are going to have different responses. The responses are not the Spirit's job. That's our domain. The conviction is the job of the Spirit. So what we're seeing is that the Spirit is at work through the message and its direct application, getting as pointed as we need to so that people get the idea that they may be guilty to show someone his sin and summon him to repentance. What you're seeing is that sounds an awful lot like the goal of preaching, right? To show someone their sin and summon them to repentance. There is a very interesting passage that sounds an awful lot like what we've studied this morning in John 16. It's in Acts 24 where Paul is talking to Felix and it says, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that sound like Jesus saying he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment? Righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Alarmed, upset, scared, afraid. These are all reactions because Felix got the point. He heard it and he knew, I'm either going to have to get mad or I'm going to have to be humbled or maybe I can just put it off. But you see, those emotions are there because the Spirit has done His work of convicting. He rejects the gospel, at least as far as we know. But that's not the Spirit's responsibility. The Spirit has convicted the world. Now, sometimes, I think you can see in the New Testament record that the Spirit has an even more direct role. Like, for example, when the Spirit gives information about Ananias and Sapphira or Cornelius and speaks directly and is all over the situation. But even then, the Spirit does not take over the human response. You don't see that. We always have the ability to reject or accept. And, and file this under that too, uh, this situation in 1 Corinthians 14, that sometimes the Spirit has an even more direct role. This is uh, where Paul's talking about prophecy in the assembly. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He is saying conviction can work this way, where when the Spirit is speaking through you, when you're prophesying and someone comes in and they realize they hear that they are convicted of sin, they are summoned to repentance, suddenly they say, this is it. And Paul says that is best case scenario for what can happen in our assemblies where people say this is the kind of people I need to be around. God is among them. So the spirit in this situation has an even more direct role and yet the person still has his own free will. He falls down. He worships God. He declares that and that is always his choice. So it seems to me that the most important thought that we could glean from a study like this is that when the gospel is preached and when people are shown their sin and summoned to repentance, the Spirit is behind it. 
That is the continuation of the work of Jesus. It still goes on every time that happens. Every time, sorry, every time we show someone their sin and summon them to repentance. And I believe that we need to be more conscious and more confident in attributing that process to the Spirit. People always have their choices, but the Spirit is working. He's helping us to know ourselves and to know God. He is convicting us, and through us, He is convicting the world. In fact, I'll just say it this way. It seems entirely appropriate for me to say this. Since we walk after the Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in us, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit that even our lives and examples are part of how the Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit at work in the world. So, that doesn't mean, please don't go out of here telling me that I said this, that does not mean that we are infallible or that we are inspired or that in some way we're speaking for God in a direct way. I'm just saying that when we're doing the Lord's work and other people notice and they feel something because of that, they are shown their sin and summoned to repentance, that that is the work consciously attributed by Jesus to the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says the Spirit is going to do. So you might have heard uh, over the last week of the powerful example of the the young man, Brant Jean, I think that's Jean, uh, whose brother uh, was murdered and the police officer that was convicted of his murder, he forgave her and hugged her in court. I mean, just, just an amazing scene. That young man is a Christian. And there is a power in a gesture like that. It shows a heart that's been touched by the gospel. Because there is no reason for us to treat other people that way had we not experienced something like that for ourselves. But what's been amazing to me is how an example like that radiates through our world, how people see it and they're touched by it and their hearts are changed. Now, some people, it makes them angry. And some people, it makes them reflective. You see, those responses, though, you can't control. Everyone is impressed. Everyone is challenged. Because I think even those of us who are Christians ask ourselves the question, could I, could I do that? You know, and if not, why not? And if he can forgive that, what about the small things that I have trouble letting go? I want you to think about how in situations like that, the Spirit can be at work convicting the world. Now, I'm not saying that that preaches a full gospel sermon to everyone. There's more work to be done. But there is a conviction that comes from that. There is a summoning that I think is right in line with what we've been studying, how God is at work in the world. So here is what I want to leave you with. I want us to think about regaining that sense of awe at what God can do and how he can use fallible people like you and me to do it. That God has always been, since the time of Jesus, at work in this way. And he continues to be at work. I want us to have a sense of confidence that God is going to continue to work on the world and he's going to use us if we'll let him. 
to convict the world of their sin and to summon them to repentance. And I intend for that to make us grateful because when Jesus talks about this, he says, this is a good thing for you. And obviously it's intended to be a good thing for the world. So as you go through your week, remember God has sent his spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he wants you to show the world in whatever opportunities and forums you have to summon the world to repentance and show it its sin. And he can use you in that cause. So let the Spirit use you to convict the world. I appreciate your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.